This podcast is sponsored by Echelon. Echelon is the affordable way to get the workout equipment, the workout community, and an instructor's motivation right in the comfort of your own home. With Echelon, you can work at any time, day or night, and crush your fitness goals. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, just text GENIUS to 818181. Quick disclaimer, message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs. I have uh, Yair Lior. Yair learned his BA from in philosophy and East Asian studies at Tel Aviv University and a master's in Chinese traditional aesthetics from BNU China and a PhD in religious studies from Boston University. Uh, his background is in comparative religion, uh, the scientific study of religion, and Chinese religions with a focus on the Song Dynasty intellectual history. So, Yair, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It sounds like your background is wide-ranging and pretty extensive. So I want to leave it open to you uh, within the the realm of religion. Uh, What what topic would you like to focus on today? And that's what we'll do. I'm happy to talk about my research, uh, religion and science, um, anything that is, um, I mean, I can also go into things that are specifically related to China, but uh, I tend to, I think that in a short conversation, it makes more sense to look at the bigger questions about religion, theory of religion. Yeah. All right. So what are those, what are those bigger questions that you've run into maybe time and time again? I think that my background is in comparative religion and I've been looking especially at the Chinese tradition and comparing it to other traditions. And slowly in my development, I've come across uh, new methods and theories that allow us to compare religious traditions or cultural traditions um, using more scientific methodologies. So one of the things that I'm interested in theoretically in in, in, in the domain of theory of religion is how can we compare religions responsibly, namely, not just, you know, it feels like this religion, this element in this religion looks like another element in another religion. And, you know, things like that create the possibility of you imagining similarities or feeling this kind of deja vu sensation. But then when you actually go and look into the details, you see that there's not much to it. So a lot of uh, a lot of comparative religionists have been trying to find methods, more scientific, more robust methods to compare religious systems. One of those is complexity science and systems theory. So for people in traditional social sciences and especially in the humanities, this might seem a little bit strange because these are theories that come from the hard sciences. They come from computer modeling, from mathematics, complexity theory, and things like that. Quick yeah. question here before we move on. What's the issue in comparing religions? Like why are there inaccurate comparisons? And I, you know, it's a good question. I don't even know how you compare religions. Like what, 
what are the traditional elements that are looked at before we go into the theories of how to do it better? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. Comparative religion has been fraught with many problems. There have been very talented and capable comparativists that have done great work on trying to find universal patterns in religion cross-culturally. Some of those are like the founders of religious studies, the academic study of religion, like Murcia Eliade and many other very capable scholars. But the problem is that when less talented people try to do comparative religion, or not necessarily less talented, but people with less knowledge, you can maybe sometimes unintentionally come up with generalizations saying that arguing that you see some kind of resonance or similarity across traditions, that when this is actually put to test by people who specialize in these traditions, those conclusions seem very, very shallow and and, and unsupported. So comparative religion is a very tricky place where it seems like religions do share certain similarities, but then when you go into the fine details of how these traditions operate, you see great, great um, divergences and differences. So when we make, when we reach conclusions about universal patterns and common traits and religions, we need to be really careful not to fall into those traps. You know, before we go deeper, if you were to just generalize, uh, I don't know, the major world religions, are they more different than similar? Are they more similar than different? You know, like what's a general statement you could make based on what you've seen? Yeah, yeah. So that's a really good, that's actually bringing us straight to the conversation about theory and religion and comparative religion. I would say that there's two ways to look at any phenomenon, whether it's biological, um, cultural, or even, even physical, inanimate. Namely, one is to look at it in the short term, to look at proximate mechanisms. And one of one option is to look at a very large scale, a macro scale, which looks at ultimate methods. So when you look at world religions today, to your question, when you look at them closely and compare things like Christianity to Buddhism and Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, and Taoism, for instance, or Confucianism, you will immediately be struck by how different they are, right? They have, you know, different scriptures, different rituals, um, many different things that are idiosyncratic to their specific background, cultural background. That's looking at it from a very short distance, micro level approach. But when you look at these traditions in a macro historical perspective, namely you start contrasting them to religions that emerged in the Paleolithic or ancient Egyptian or ancient Greek, ancient Mesopotamian, Mayan and Aztec religions, you start recognizing very, very clear commonalities in this family of religions that we call world religions today. They share what Wittgenstein, the philosopher, called a family resemblance. So my final answer to your question is that there are both many differences that are worth exploring and worth talking about and studying and specialists do that. But there's, when you look at it in a macro scale, there's actually very interesting similarities across traditions um, that are very important to talk about if we want to understand cultural evolution. So what, what jumps out at you when looking at the various religions? Like what you believe may have been missed that you see is now suddenly very important to consider? Um, I think that today we're living mainly in a postmodern world that says that we shouldn't subscribe to grand theories or one ultimate truth 
that gives us an answer to everything. Under that postmodern trend, um, the idea that there's similarities among religions was attacked and people started going into specialization and focusing on differences between traditions. Um, what people who look at the grand picture are saying is that, for instance, the world religions that we that dominate our religious landscapes today uh, tend to be much more rational than traditions that preceded them. They tend to be focused much more on ethics and morality. So that would seem strange for people who don't have a religious studies background. It seems obvious to us to make a, com uh, a connection between morality and religion. But actually, when we look at the history, the deep history of religion, there's no such connection. If you look at Paleolithic traditions, shamanic traditions, if you look at archaic, pre-modern traditions, you see that the gods are very much amoral. They behave in ways that are far from being a model for ethical virtue and so forth. They don't really expect humans to be moral. Really what they expect is sacrifice and dedication. Uh, but they, they don't necessarily want you to be compassionate and all-loving and altruistic. Um, it's very clear in today's religions that that's a major, major trait of what we call axial religions or world religions like Christianity, Buddhism, and Hinduism, for instance. Becoming, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. did that change happen and why? So there's a, a, a fascinating theory promoted by Karl Jaspers, um, a German philosopher, um, sometime in the late 1940s, that's called the axial age theory. The axial age, namely the age of transformation, an axis in human history. Karl Jaspers and his followers were mainly trying to understand when did modernity emerge? You can go back to the Industrial Revolution. You, go, you can go back to the Enlightenment. You can go back to the scientific revolution of the 16th century and 17th century, but he went back all the way to the first millennium BCE, and especially to a few centuries between 800 and 200 BCE, where he claimed that all of the great thinkers that gave rise to the major traditions that we practice today were operating more or less at the same time. So for instance, in Israel and Palestine, you had the Jewish prophets, were a foundation for Judaism, Christianity, and monotheism. In Greece, you had the famous philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. This is happening 5th and 4th century BC together with the prophet. In China, you have Lao Tzu and Confucius working in the 6th and 5th century BCE. Siddhartha Gautama, namely the Buddha, as an origin of uh, Buddhism in India, is working in the 5th in 6th century BC, and so on and so on. So many of the traditions that we practice today have their roots in exceptional thinkers who started to think along new lines in the first millennium BC. I've been working too hard and not working out enough. I wanted to get in shape, but I don't have time to get to the gym. Echelon brings the gym home to me. So right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, Text Genius, G-E-N-I-U-S, to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, text Genius to 818181, and message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Yeah, that's really strange. It's, it's not simultaneous, but it flashes into my mind, you know, the idea of simultaneous invention. 
which seems to occur like it, it it's weird ideas inventions etc seem to occur contemporaneously in different parts of the world you know in yes. many instances so i wonder if um you know why do you think that this happened in a similar way yeah so your question again drives to the heart of some some of the most interesting questions that we ask in uh, macro scale approaches to culture and religion namely why did these things happen together is there some kind of invisible hand or mystical resonance or some kind of strange synchronicity and the answer is you don't really need that in order to explain the coevolution of things in different places in the world if you look at the evolution of systems they go through stages of increasing complexity and therefore in the first so to take the example of world religions in the first century bce you have a certain cultural complexity at place this is a time where many traditions are transitioning from bronze technology to the iron age this is a time where you have massive urbanization in most of the places where world religions evolved it's a time where new writing systems emerge as opposed to egyptian hieroglyphics and like clunky writing systems like cuneiform or mayan glyphs suddenly you have these very efficient writing systems that are called alphabets or in china you have a decrease in the number of of chinese characters to something much more manageable so all these things are happening together and you have these tipping points or threshold moments where there's strong pressures in the environment to come up with new philosophies philosophies that are more in tune more in line with the new cultural context that is emerging so you have things like confucius the prophets the philosophers thinking about similar dilemmas and trying to find similar solutions leading to convergent traits in their philosophy when it comes to invention which you mentioned you know so think about the invention of calculus by newton and leibniz two great geniuses that kind of co-invented calculus at the same time it's usually attributed to newton but leibniz was working on the same things when you have a certain level of complexity of mathematical theory in place it's very likely there's attractors or there's a bias towards certain inventions that are very necessary to move human knowledge forward but it's really the foundations that are already in place that allow people at different places in the world to come up with similar inventions um which seems strange to us but when you analyze it from from a long term perspective it's a little bit well i don't know does it point to any divine hand or divine intervention that again people all of a sudden you know not again at the exact same time but within this short span of you know several hundred years mm. like what do you think drove that why why was there a i guess maybe a religious renaissance you can call it or i don't know what scholars have called it but why yeah. would it happen in that period i think that it's due to fairly similar rates of de- of development within complex systems so i'm starting to use this terminology of complex adaptive system chaos theory the idea that the world is composed of various systems a system can be something very simple and it can be a whole culture so if you look at the rate of change in the way that material biotic and cultural organisms complexify you see that there's actually a certain a certain uh, common rate of that of that development so it's likely that people for instance when you have agriculture at one point 
you know, about 10,000 years ago, suddenly we come across agriculture. We invented it. We found out that it's possible to domesticate plants. Um, it makes, it, it happened after a certain ice age, the end of a certain ice age. It makes a lot of sense that within that ecology and environment where agriculture is possible, that people will come across agriculture. Now, that's just one example. But once you have agriculture, it opens the door for a whole new level of complexity. So from hunter-gatherer societies, suddenly you have the agricultural revolution. And before you know it, you have massive, massive civilizations like Babylon, Syria, the Hittites, um, you know, um, Shang Dynasty, China. Why is that? Because the rate of complexification, once you come across something like agriculture is fairly similar in different civilizations and traditions. It might, there might be discrepancies of a few centuries, but in grand historical, um, in a grand historical perspective, it seems to be synchronous, which it is. There's also cultural diffusion where ideas move in between cultures. So I guess my, my main point is that I don't think you need a divine hand. I don't think that you need divine intervention here. It's really, there's naturalistic ways to explain complexification and convergent evolution um, that don't necessitate, you know, supernatural. Well, what if this was a long time building and it only manifested after 50 years of work, 100 years of work, 200 years of work? Maybe it seems sudden, but it was there for a long time, slowly simmering and improving. You know, like I, agriculture, I don't, I don't right. you know, who, who would magically poof, this season all right we're planting we're doing all this other stuff it seems like it would have been a very slow accumulation of knowledge till it, it suddenly looks successful but it was maybe a you know a long term a long time getting there oh yeah i absolutely agree with you i, I don't think it contradicts what i said but i absolutely agree with you the um agriculture took many centuries and even millennia to develop so at the beginning you know, you have hunter-gatherers who kind of like understand that there's a possibility for domesticating certain plants, but they mainly rely on hunting and gathering. Before you know it, there's a move, a transition to agriculturalist villages, which are really small and not very complex entities. And slowly, there's a ratchet effect where agriculture becomes more and more efficient, more and more reliable. And it takes as much as, you know, 4,000 years before you have or even 5,000 years before you have the great first agriculturalist civilizations of Sumer and Egypt. So very gradual, um, many mistakes, many regressions along the line. But again, in macro scale historical, um, in a macro scale historical view, you do see a push, an evolutionary uh, bias towards complexification and complexity usually unfolds in similar, relatively similar and coherent stages in different cultures. Um, you can't build um, the Roman Empire if you don't have, or Alexander the Great's uh, Greek Empire, if you don't have Egypt and Babylonia and Assyria before that. It needs every complex process builds upon core processes that came before it. So again, it does seem, I get this question a lot, isn't it this mystical resonance that all these traditions emerge at the same time? I think there's scientific ways to explore this without it. Well, I mean, what, I don't know if you could speak to this, but what have you observed that 
engaging in comparative religion has done to you know the engagers' faiths. You know, I don't know if you want to talk about your faith. Has it reduced it, improved it? Has it confused it? And what do you observe in other scholars? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I teach at BU, and um, one of my courses, Introduction to Religion. It's a basic course of any department of religion, introduce religion. And I happen to give a evolutionary approach to religion in that course. It's not very common at all. Um, usually, you know, introduction to religions are like world surveys, surveys of world religions or basic theory of religion, like what's ritual, what's belief, why do we all believe in supernatural? I provide this evolutionary approach. And what I found is that um, many of my students, many of my religious students uh, find it to be a very challenging course in terms of their beliefs. Because when you start interpreting the evolution of religion naturalistically, when you realize that something like Christianity wasn't here for such a long time, and there's many other religions that preceded it in human history, and that it's really an outcome of its cultural context, it kind of trivialized many of the things that are central to the belief system of pious Christian. I found a lot of people, predominantly Christians, just because I'm teaching in the United States at Boston, would come to my office hours and really question me, ask very troubling questions about, they seem confused and a little bit disoriented by by this approach to religion that is very scientific. And sometimes it angers them. And sometimes they, uh, you know, they'll kind of recoil back to their traditional positions. But sometimes you have students who are just fascinated by the whole thing and are willing to explore other possibilities and starting to think about religion differently, not from a confessional point of view, but from a more social science, scientific point of view. So, um, you know, there's an example of um, in Judaism. Or in Christianity, where there's a very famous documentary thesis about the composition of the Bible. And today, um, I won't, you know, trouble you with all the details of this theory, but it's very clear that there's many authors to the Hebrew Bible. Many authors that come from different times, um, they have different language, they even have different names for God in the Bible. And they were edited and compiled into something that seems coherent. When Jewish students come to me, you know, pious, believing Jews who suddenly hear this theory, also Christians, it strikes them as very problematic because according to their upbringing, you know, this text is revealed. It's revealed by God. What do you mean authors? Human authors? And you're telling me that it's different human authors in different generations and different centuries? It completely undermines their belief system. So... Why would it? Why would it undermine? I mean, supposedly if these people were divinely inspired. Why would it undermine your belief system? You know, why? It, it, why would the uh, you know the Hebrew Bible have to happen all in the same week, month, yeah. year, decade, century? <laughs> why? Why couldn't people be inspired over time, and then other people collected those works and put them together? And I understand, like I forget what they call it, but what's included and what's excluded is definitely a very hot topic, but. Right, right. I, I agree with you. I mean, for many people who are more lenient and compromising, it doesn't really matter. They'll provide exactly what you just said. They'll say, you know, these people were divinely inspired and they communicate universal truths. 
the prophets, for instance, but for a very, very orthodox believer, whether it's a Jew or a Christian, there's an un uncompromising notion that says that the Bible, especially the Torah, the first five books of Moses or the Pentateuch, were revealed on Mount Sinai. They were revealed by God, and Moses is kind of an author of this revelation, but it all happened at what one time. The Bible has a very different version of how, and religious communities have very different versions of how these very important scriptures, sacred scriptures, came into being. And it's very different than documentary thesis that trivializes and starts to break down the text into different modules and components that, you know, come from different ideologies and different interest groups. Uh, so, yeah, depending on how invested you are in the tradition, it could be a problem or it could be something that you would be able to integrate. How finely divided are parts of the, the Hebrew Bible, like the Ten Commandments? With does it seem like that was written up by one author or even that might have been an amalgamation over time of different ideas into this one story of Moses? Yeah, even that. Yeah, even that might have been a kind of combination of certain truths, certain ideas that were very important to the Jewish, to the Judean constitution. Uh, the Torah is essentially a constitution of an emerging state in Judea. Uh, but, you know, when you look open Genesis, you start reading Genesis, you see a creation story. God creates a world in more or less a week, uh, rests on the Sabbath. We all know that. But we forget that once you reach Genesis 2.4, lo and behold, you have another creation story, a completely different one. One that is about the Garden of Eden, two trees, a tree of you know life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, a completely different story. Namely, there were two different versions of creation that were circulating that were very important to different kingdoms and different tribes at the time. And the biblical editors decided to include both of them, but they are not compatible. There's two different stories there. Um, God is referred to differently by different authors. Some authors call him Yahweh, the four-letter word, tetragrammaton, whatever you want to call it, uh, this um, word that is spelled in um, Jehovah or Yahweh in Hebrew, it's four letters that aren't supposed to be pronounced. And another author calls him El or Elohim, which is a completely different tradition that essentially people who edited the Bible or the first layers of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible in the 5th and 6th century BCE, decided to synthesize these different strands, these different scrolls and different texts that they had into something that is more or less a coherent story. But yeah, many contradictions and many more that you could, you know, you could dwell on for hours and days. Well, one thing that I thought that why would people that don't seem to personally benefit from this, how, how could they be so, how could so many people be so inspired and again, write things that, you know, appear to be on, on their face, like, you know, good ways to live, you know, morals, ethics, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And they don't seem to, again, personally benefit from doing so. So does that lend any credence to like the, you know, the veracity of these things, or does it not really change it in your mind that these things are either true or not true? So as for the 
uncompromising biblical narrative of how things happen with the 10 plagues in Egypt and, you know, the parting of the sea and all kinds of miracles, I would say that uh, modern scholarship and scientific analysis of archaeology and history and philology have demonstrated that it's not quite that story. But people are usually more sophisticated than that. And as you said, they believe that some of these prophets were divinely inspired and they had some of them at the, at, at the risk of being executed, um, ostracized, and various things went, went forward and said these very controversial truths that they communicated to humanity. I'm willing to accept something like that, but that doesn't necessarily conform to the orthodox biblical narrative. I do think that some people are inspired by by certain things and they have the ability to communicate truths that are universal, but that that that's pretty far away from the orthodox idea of God. If you open the prophets, God suddenly choosing an individual and communicating information in, in a kind of conversational manner to these individuals that are then communicated to the rest of, of humanity. I think that a different process is taking place. What do you mean a different process is taking place? Um, it's not necessarily, it depends on what you mean by being divinely inspired. Oh, like, I mean, there's the literal where, you know, God essentially, you know, your experience an inclination or actual words or whatever it may be, you, you, you believe that you literally are being told or guided by God to write something. Yeah. And then there's just, because I have faith, let's say, I, you know, this is my interpretation of what God wants and thinks and all that. So I write that. And then, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't even think there's a looser interpretation of that yet. I mean, it, I think it can only probably be one of those two things, but you know, if it wasn't directly divinely inspired, if someone didn't go, and they felt this, you know, in a dream or however it was communicated to them. If, if that didn't happen and they just wanted to do it of their own accord out of the quote goodness of their heart, I guess that doesn't seem to, that's weird to me. You know, I think, yeah. I feel like it may support a true divine inspiration for these texts because again, like when have we seen that someone would write something like this with again, no apparent, apparent benefits of themselves and it'd be so pithy and so. I mean, I don't know. It's just—it's amazing that this stuff would be written again. With it seems rare that this stuff would ever be written under these circumstances again, with no recognition, with no benefit, with no nothing. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, as for benefits, we don't know. Many of these people who are many of the prophets and people who are preaching information have a lot to gain from these new messages, new followers, political power, undermining old authorities. But I guess. I I understand your point here, but think about modern critiques. People who we we all have a moral compass and we see things that aggravate us, that injustices, and we stand up and say our truth. That could lead to bullying. It could lead to losing your job, but people still do it. So why wouldn't the prophets do the same thing? When you look at Amos, he's looking at the corruption, both of kings and of priests at the temple and he's he he says his truth he says that you know god is going to punish us for this injustice for this corruption and we need to go back to this faith in 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 the one god 
And so he's really a social critique who's uh, criticizing political and economic and financial elites, just like someone in modern day um, um, U.S. would would do something very similar. So, you know, people are inspired to say what they believe in. And the prophets were living in a religious context where belief was absolutely pervasive. Everything that you wanted to communicate would have some kind of bearing on the supernatural, because that's a world that they lived in. This is pre-secularization. You don't have this notion of a godless world. So everything is motivated by God. So their idiom, the way they communicate information is through the language of divine inspiration, because they truly believe that what they were saying is very important, essentially universal. So it makes sense. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that they were cheating. I'm just saying that they probably did believe that they, this was under divine inspiration. But today, a modern would say um, very similar things, a modern atheist, without necessarily contending that, you know, the hand of God is, is in that. So is the real prescient and smart folks the ones that decided to aggregate this and turn it into, a you know, I guess the canonizers? Are those the ones that did it for a completely different reason, for power, for consolidation, or like, what do you think would be the thought process again of a of a contributor versus someone that was assembling this stuff together? Yeah, the canonizers are the people who usually move towards standardization. They realize that there's too much noise, too much background noise in terms of information discrepancies, different beliefs. People are confused as to how to follow ritual, what to do, how to sacrifice and so forth. So what they do, there's an abundance, there's an over of information and they want to trim it, prune it, systemize it, standardize it. So people will be whole communities and whole congregations will act in a coherent way. So standardization is absolutely essential for a tradition to take off and become established. In Christianity, you see the Nicene Creed, where, you know, bishops and an ecumenical meeting of church authorities came together and decided, what is Christianity? What's in and what's out, as you mentioned before? What's in and what's out of the New Testament? What's, um, is the Trinity something that you have to believe in um, or not? They decided that, yes, the Trinity is absolutely part of Christian dogma, and they came up with a whole set of ideas and beliefs that are essential for Christianity. In Judaism, this happened in the same way after the destruction of the first of the first temple. The Jews were exiled to Babylon and they realized really quickly if they don't have a coherent scripture, a coherent body of information to characterize the tradition, they will probably go extinct. And in Babylon, these um, exiled priests and exiled intellectuals and scribes edit the Bible from something that was fairly incoherent, many texts floating around, talking about different different stories that happened to the Jews, some in Egypt, some within the land of Israel. They brought them together, synthesized them, and standardized them into something that essentially became a constitution for, for the Judean state. So they're really the people with power who determine how past information is going to be perceived and interpreted for the next centuries. So like the King James Bible, the King James version would be like the, maybe the best known ultimate standardization of, of what the exact phenomena you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. So standardization. So 
there's versions before that, but you know, you have these updated versions that become a standard for everyone who's reading the Bible. It's way easier to control populations when there's a coherent body of information that underlies the whole cultural process. And as you said, the whole, the whole long, long period of deciding what enters canon, what is excluded from canon is fascinating. You see that in many different traditions, a natural part of the development of great world traditions. They start off um, as being relatively incoherent, but then they become more powerful. And at one point, you have to have a group of scribes or editors that bring things together into a standard. What have you noticed about, um, again, in general, the faith of people that go through courses that you offer, you know, comparative religion? Do, do people take like three paths? You know, for some, it strengthens their faith. For, for some, it ruins their faith. For some, it just dramatically changes their faith. Like, what have you observed in the aggregate happens to people that engage in, you know, these areas of inquiry in, in comparative religion? I, I don't always know the outcome because I tend to meet students throughout the semester where they come up with these kind of existential dilemmas that they're facing. But I would say that in general, the this specific course that I was talking about tends to destabilize their belief system and kind of push them towards further exploration. Um, I know at least of one or two cases where um, you know, people came in to some of these courses with a certain perspective about Christianity or Judaism or Islam and came out of the course with a little bit of more analytical suspicion towards texts, towards these traditions. And I think that that's a good thing. I tell religious people, this doesn't need to undermine your religion, but it can certainly strengthen it if you base your religious beliefs on exploration rather than taking things for granted because you were told so. So this whole process that is very hard to go through, to start asking new questions, to realize that some things that you took for granted aren't necessarily that way, that's a good thing for your belief system because it, it forces you to struggle and to, to grapple with these ideas. And you can come out the other side, so to speak, with a more updated form of what your faith is. Yeah, I remember those years ago going to the Museum of the Ark, you know, in, uh, I believe in Kentucky, yeah. and they had a, a story of the flood. Mm -hmm. And they showed like at least, I don't know, there was at least like 10 versions of the story, all differed a bit. But yeah. throughout time and across different cultures, there was this similar story. So in your studies of comparative religion, do you see that as well? Like not only do these, these religious faiths appear to be constructed, you know, out of many different people's thoughts over time, but the stories in them, are they similar across religions? And what does that tell you? Yeah. Well, the stories aren't necessarily similar across tradition. The example you gave is a fascinating example of the flood story that has uh, Sumerian antecedents and Babylonian and Akkadian ones. Essentially, um, you know, you're talking about going to a museum where the museum is showing you that the fact that this story shows up in so many traditions is actually supports the idea that this is a real flood, right? But <laughs> interestingly enough, for scholars of religion, this actually undermines the whole story because um, of the Bible. 
because what seems to be the case is that there was a very powerful and very popular story about the flood. Instead of Noah, you have a different guy. His name is Utnapishtim. And, but you have an ark, you have the animals, you have the raven, you have all, all the main components of the story are identical. And it seems to be that this just happened to be a very powerful story. Perhaps it was some kind of climate change and flood involved, but it was actually co-opted by the biblical writers and the biblical edited and inserted into Genesis, namely that this is, for many people, this shows that this is not an original biblical story. It's not, it's not original to Judaism. It actually has a very different background story in Mesopotamia that has to do with immortality and stuff like that. Um, so it's an example of how a, Jude, a tradition like Judaism takes old components from old traditions, old stories in this case, and reformulates them in a way that is in line with monotheism, which is a groundbreaking new idea at the time. You know, to have one God is absolutely outrageous. So they're taking that old story and instead of using it in a polytheistic context, they're spinning it in a way that conforms to this idea that God is benevolent and he saw everyone sinning and he was devastated by it and he decided to destroy the world and save Noah and his and his family. So it's depending on how you look at this story, it could be something that supports your belief system or something that completely contradicts. Yeah, it's tough. Have you ever had anyone uh, give you the idea that perhaps God did come to many cultures and many people at different times? And, you know, let's say you're uh, you're a Muslim. And, you know, I, again, I don't know nearly as much as you do, but let's say, in the, you know, in the Muslim faith, uh, God is kind of more remote and unapproachable and more paternalistic. What about the idea that maybe God has come to many different cultures and peoples over time? And however they choose to relate to him, God says, OK, that's what I'll be to you. If you think I'm very stern and paternalistic, that's what I'll be. And at the same time, God could, you know, so, so perhaps maybe a lot of the major religions are right. They're just seeing different aspects of the same thing. Any thought there or like, where does this leave you? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a very strong trend in uh, people who are interested in religion to to promote a narrative that sounds very similar to what you just um, mentioned here. That, you know, um, there's different paths to the top of the mountain, but it's the same mountain. At the top, you have some kind of universal truth that is applicable cross-culturally that universal truth manifests differently in different cultures, hence the different paths up the mountain. They're going to look differently. Some are going to be easier. Some are going to be harder. That's a very pervasive view among some people. I think that religion is more of an adaptive, again, I'm sorry to be so scientific about the whole thing, but I think that religion is a kind of adaptation that allowed humans to persist and deal with their environments in effective ways. Um, religion explains the unknown, so it, it safeguards us against cultural dissonance and just um, complete ignorance of what's going on in the world. So it provides us explanations, but it also provides us with a blueprint for how to act in the world, how to act to other people, how to act to enemies or outsiders, how to how to transform yourself and reach transcendence. So for me, religion is more of a cultural adaptation that allowed humans to persist and to be successful 
in their environment. Under that assumption, there's some archaic um, homogeneous animals out there like Homo erectus or Homo habilis or Neanderthals that maybe didn't have the same capacity to do religion like humans. In that case, groups that had religion were able to be more cooperative, were able to coordinate action more effectively, and essentially they ended up out out competing groups that didn't have religion. Therefore, religion is a very powerful tool in a kind of cultural group selection process. So it might explain why religions show up everywhere. Anthropologists, it's completely ubiquitous. We haven't found populations, indigenous populations, any population in in documented history and archaeology that didn't have belief in supernatural entities. This suggests one of two possibilities, or the religious one, which um, I hear at least... In, in what you're saying, a little bit of that, namely that God is actually there and God inspires human beings and therefore it shows up everywhere. You can't avoid it. Or that religion was um, so essential for human evolution that groups that didn't have it simply went extinct and they're not with us today. Uh, so those are two very different perspectives and, you know, to represent two very different cultural temperaments and attitudes. To mm-hmm. um, again, last question on this, but I don't know, have, after all you know, and after all you've seen, are you able to quote unquote pick a religion, like pick Judaism or do people that again, that get into comparative religion, do they end up not really being associated with any one religion? Like what, what happens to them in general that you've observed? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I would say, majoring in religion, doing your PhD in religion, or comparative religion, religious studies, usually would, <laughs> would essentially lead you to a position. It's not always the case. I'm, I'm, I'm working with faculty who are very religious, you know, people who really, Muslims, Jews, Christians, Hindus that come from within the faith, but they interpret and analyze religion objectively. On the other hand, I would say that once you become exposed to so much data about religions, ancient religions, contemporary religions, what's happening today with religion, it's very hard to subscribe to one of those systems because you see how essential they are in such different civilizations and how pious and how wholeheartedly people believe in these systems in different places in the world so again it creates this process of trivializing any single tradition so i think that usually scholars of religious studies tend to tend to develop a more atheistic or agnostic worldview yeah i was wondering what uh what had happened here Interesting. Well, yeah, yeah. What's what's the best way for people to that are curious about this conversation to embark upon, you know, their own version of comparative religious studies? If they're not, uh, you know, at a university, and they want to do this on their own. What's your recommendation on how they get started? I think that uh, a great gateway into religion in general is simply online, as opposed to you know many textbooks that are designed for college students, undergraduate students, or even high school students online, especially YouTube, you have fascinating and great and very informative and specialized channels that focus on religion. Um, Just if there's something you're interested in, put in the keywords into YouTube, you're likely to find great lectures. I would just recommend to choose 
choose your sources of information wisely and to make sure that the people who are given the lecture don't come from within a tradition unless that's what you want, but they're actually experts on that tradition. And if you do that, you'll be able to get, you know, there's great courses on introduction to religion online and so forth. There's many books I could point you to, but I think that online is the best gateway to, you know, getting acquainted with a lot of these. Okay. Well, very good. Well, yeah, here, it's been a great conversation with you. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? Where can they go? I'm a associate, associate researcher at the Center for Mind and Culture, CMAC at Boston University. So CMAC, C-M-A-C. Uh, you could Google that. And there's a lot of research that that institution is doing. Uh, Boston University Religious Studies website has links to some of my location, my CV, things like that. That would be the, the obvious places to go. Very good. Well, yeah, here, thank you. And I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, which has been sponsored by Echelon. When you're trying to reach your fitness goals, it can really help to have world-class instructors like Nicole Griffin and Michael Brown choreographing classes with music from your favorite artists like Pitbull. And you get a community of hundreds of thousands of people who can give you that extra push. Echelon gives you that. Echelon's certified fitness instructors are supportive, engaging, and fun. They really know how to get you moving. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners can get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181. Message and data rates may apply. Please see terms for details. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.